After taking their summer break, the Cuyahoga County Council came right back and squandered a whole lot of money. We'll be talking about it on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I am here with Courtney Astolfi, Lisa Garvin, and Laura Johnston. It's a hot story. Let's get to it. They are just back from their summer break, the Cuyahoga County Council. And did they, in their first meeting back, spend in, spend more than $50 million on the failed medical mart, including more than $30 million they're going to have to borrow, even though both candidates for county executive absolutely oppose the idea? Courtney, we're 108 days from a new county executive being in office. They don't want this debt. They don't want to borrow $30 million. And the council's doing it anyway. Yeah, the council yesterday, like you said, on their first day back from break, moved through this this $40 million expense from the county, but it actually is $50 million. I'll give you the breakdown. So like you said, there's $31 million in new debt here. So county taxpayers are going to be paying that off for a long time. But then there's also over $9 million, including some federal stimulus cash, there's money coming out of the general fund, which supports things like, you know, public safety and health and human services. And then there are also proceeds from convention center naming rights that are going part that are part of this $40 million in county cash going to the project. Now we also have another $9 million coming from the nonprofit board that oversees the convention center and the global center. And in that organization, while it does bring in its own revenues from conventions, it, it is also supported annually every year by, by county infusions of cash. So you've got pretty much a $50 million batch of, of county money going of towards this project. Money. This is our money that they're flushing down the toilet. It's look, the thing that throws me on this. And it, it's not just me. I'm hearing from lots of people that are saying, I don't get it. Why are they doing this? This doesn't make sense. I mean, you have both county executive candidates not wanting to borrow money for this, wanting to look at it another way. You've got the residents of Cuyahoga County dead set against it in large numbers. And yet they're racing forward on it. And it really is causing people to wonder if there's some kind of sinister backstory. You're hearing more and more people say, you know, maybe there needs to be a real investigation. Who's going to get this $50 million? Whose pocket does it go into? And what are they doing to get that money? Because this, you can't make a case for doing it now. You can make a case for throwing it forward to January when there's a new executive so that you work out what the best future is. But you can't make the case for doing it now. Yeah, you know, yesterday, council members really didn't touch on that timing of the new executive coming in. They were speaking more generally of the need to do something with this, you know, boondoggle of a building. They said they can't just let it sit there and languish. This would be a way to breathe life into it. Um, I don't think, like you said, a lot of county taxpayers necessarily subscribe to that idea, too. But the, the only dissent we really got yesterday on this plan was from Councilwoman Nan Baker. She's a Western suburban Republican, and she also agreed that the county must do something to repurpose the Global Center. The reason why she dissented and voted against it is because she wanted to piecemeal this out, fund some money up front, but then hold back other money for what she saw as kind of pricey extras and see if maybe that could be done later. So right. 
That yeah. that's the point, though. They are doing the Taj Mahal treatment when taxpayers don't have the money to afford it. There there are other steps they could take. They don't have to do fifty million. There might be some budget plan they could do. They're not talking about that. And to not talk about the timing is ridiculous because the next executive will come in, and this money won't all be spent yet. They'll try to undo this. You would think. And that will mean we're wasting money because they won't be able to undo it all. It, the, the timing is everything right now. It, and it, this just doesn't make sense. And when nothing makes sense, you have to start looking at, okay, so what's the real reason they're, they're cramming this thing through? The fact that they didn't even talk about that is interesting in its own right. We'll be talking to the county executive candidates today in our endorsement interview. I'm sure this will come up. You are listening to Today in Ohio. Republicans have tried repeatedly to dislodge Senator Sherrod Brown from his seat. Sherrod's getting up there in age. Will he do the dance one more time when his term ends in two years? Lisa, there are a whole lot of people that salivate at the idea of getting into that Senate seat. But if Sherrod wants to keep it, he'll be a hard guy to get out. And he's going to go for a third six-year term in 2024. He was uh, questioned by a reporter at the end of an interview on another subject, and he was asked, is he going to run again in 2024? He had one word answer, yes. But then he qualified that by saying, oh, there's a longer answer, and I plan to formally announce at some point. But of course, he's got a couple years to go. He was first elected in 2006, again in 2012 when Obama, Obama carried Ohio, and then again in 2018 when the GOP took all of the statewide non-judicial races. So he was quite a unicorn in Ohio. He will be turning 70 this November 9th, the day after the general election, still in my mind, a young fella. Um, his possible challengers from the GOP could be Secretary of State Frank LaRose, who passed on the Senate race this time, but will probably gear up the next time. And also State Senator Matt Dolan, who did quite well in the Senate GOP primary against uh, Vance and uh, uh, a host of others. <laughs> Um, you said it'd be his third term. It'd be his fourth, as you laid fourth out. Fourth term, correct. You're right. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I, I, the, running against Sherrod is a lot different than running for an open seat vacated by Rob Portman. Sherrod has proved remarkably strong in each of his runs. And I, I'm surprised. I mean, Frank LaRose has been all over the map. And I mean, he's really been a changeable person the past year with some of his ridiculous statements about the election while trying to say our election was sound. I don't know how much credibility he has, but for Matt Dolan to take on Sherrod Brown, he's taken on a fellow Northeast Ohio guy who's very, very popular with, with Ohio. I mean, he wins Ohio by a decent margin each time. I'm surprised the legitimate Republican candidate will take him on. He's run against Josh Mandel, who's a joke. He's run against Jim Renacci, who's who's equally silly. I, I would expect more of that kind of caliber of candidate. You know, it'd be interesting to see whether they think he's vulnerable, because it seems to me that the the, Demo the uh, GOP field against him has been pretty muted. We don't have like six or seven candidates running against him that I know of. Of course, I wasn't here for all of his elections, but... Well, the thing about Sherrod Brown is, is he's genuine and authentic. He, he's never waffled. You can't accuse him of changing positions. He is who he's always been. He's always stood for the same principles. 
and Ohio likes that. He you know he stands up for the the working guy and he, he the dignity of work and all of the 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 phrases he uses. It's real, and I think Ohio senses that, and that's why I think it's so hard, even in a state that has gone heavily for Donald Trump. Jared Brenwitz, people say, oh, you know, the, the Republicans have all the statewide offices. They don't. They cannot beat Sherrod Brown. He's one handily. So I would expect that would happen again unless he had some kind of serious health concern. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to see Ohio. him running. Yeah, me too. <laughs> he's, he's uh, you know, you don't always agree with him and he and he'll cuss you out whenever he doesn't agree with you. He's pretty irascible, but he is authentic. And that's interesting to see in politics. It's today in Ohio. What's the latest spending from the Cuyahoga County Council's $66 million in slush funds, which, as we detailed in our big story on Sunday, were created outside the entire realm of state sunshine law? Laura, we talked about the MedMart and how most of the county thinks that's an idiotic idea. The slush funds have a lot of people up in arms, too. It's another one where the county council just doesn't seem to be listening. Well, maybe they're just listening to the people getting money. I'm not quite sure, but we're looking at $17 million on city on county council's agenda last night alone. So on first reading, so it has to go through three readings to get voted on, but the first beginning was $4.1 million. The largest chunk was $2 million to improve Shaker Square, um, followed by $900,000 to demolish an old school building at North Olmstead. And then there was final approval for $12.8 million worth of project. That includes funding for the Hitchcock Center for Women Treatment Facility, a police firearms range in Rocky River, and a whole host of things which don't really sound like the transformational projects that we were hoping for when we first talked about this big pot of stimulus money. A lot of mundane things like community services bus replacement project or capital improvements to the Harvard Community Services Center or the Lee Road Corridor Revitalization Project. I mean, these are things the government would be doing anyway. Yeah, it's. I, I think what they're trying to do, because they know they're under the gun on this and it's going to be a campaign issue, we'll certainly be bringing it up. They're trying to argue that the ends justify the means. Yes, we violated the Sunshine Law. Well, they're not admitting it, but they did. Violated the Sunshine Law to create these things. Yes, they went to their favored people to give them access to it and blocked a whole bunch of legitimate organizations from even being able to apply. So they're going to be under the gun, which, again, we will be stressing at campaign time. They're going to want to say, well, it went to good stuff. You know, we paved roads. We did this. We did this trying to act like the process and their secrecy and they're working outside the law, it doesn't matter. Right. I mean, if you think about this, it kind of, I mean, there's a smack of political patronage here because these a are smack. the folks. <laughs> okay. I was trying to be diplomatic and not overstep, but yeah, exactly. This idea that they are rewarding the the mayors in their town so that the mayors can say, look what this county council person did for us. They were the ones that provided this this crosswalk or got this project done or, you know, a dog park is one of the projects they've been talking about. I mean, there's still, I don't understand the impetus to spend money on golf courses. I mean, we've got a golf course clubhouse, I think in Parma they're talking about and the Ridgewood golf course project. I just, I don't get it. This doesn't seem like the number one thing. And also I feel like we should look at how much public money is being stuffed into Shaker Square because this is another $2 I know. million. Dollars. I and know. the city we, council I mean, already raised... has what, eight? 
Yeah, we raised hell about how much Cleveland was spending on this thing that has repeatedly been a failure. And now the county is kicking in even more. I don't think the county, it's not a lot left, but I don't think they finished paying off the bonds for the previous failed iteration of Shaker Square that the county borrowed money for. The last time I looked, they still had a few payments left. So now they're going to kick in more money that they're not borrowing. The, the, the idea that they think they'll be able to get the mayors to support them, I'm sure our editorial board's going to do what we did with the county executives race. About this time last year, I think it was, we begged for candidates to run for county executive because the county was being run into the ground. We'll do the same thing to run against these county council members and really stress these unpopular ideas because they, yeah. they're asking for it. They are not of- doing the good will of the people some of these council members have been on council since the original iteration and you know i was covering them in 2010 and courtney's covered them and now caitlin's covering them and so they've been around at least 12 years now and there has never been really heated races for these seats except for maybe the first time around when they were completely open but i would say half of the council is still the original folks on it I know, but look what happened in the Cleveland mayor's race, right? The, yeah. the the old administration, the traditional candidate thought they could walk right in and we got this upstart, young, vibrant guy who ran against them and won handily. I think that there's a new generation of people in their mid-30s maybe that that might just be tickled by the idea of good government and being a participant well, in it to run out this old guard. That, that's... What's so ironic, right? Old guard. We're talking about an old guard in a government form that was only created 12 years ago. And that was the whole point of the reform was we were going to get all these brand new, like free thinkers into government. It was going to be a part-time position so that we would get new thought and professionals who had other jobs. (laughs) And we got Dale Miller and Marty Sweeney. (laughs) I mean, yeah. Right. The washed up has-beens of the world are still in power. I do think that that if we... If the editorial board does it right, like they did with the executive, we'll get some new candidates stepping forward. We've got to, because a lot of people are calling for an abolition of this government form 10 years, 11 years in, because it's been such a failure. And the slush funds are just one of the examples. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This does not involve slush fund cash, but it is federal stimulus dollars that are involved in the next story, kind of, sort of. How will stimulus dollars help Cuyahoga County residents travel out of state to get abortions. Lisa, we talked about this a lot when Cleveland was proposing it. And part of our concern was that Cleveland does not have any kind of apparatus to make this happen in a timely fashion. County has a different approach. Do they, though? I mean, I don't know. I mean, they are the the, the county board of control did approve four hundred and seventy five thousand dollars in ARPA money to pay for several things, including travel and lodging for women seeking abortions out of state. They agreed to a no bid contract with the Center for Community Solutions that goes through April of twenty twenty five. And they say that no county money will be used for abortions, just the ARPA funds. So about two hundred and seventy eight thousand dollars of this money will go to a community assistance fund, which they say the biggest piece of this fund is to educate pregnant women on their options, but it will also pay for hotel and travel as well. Um, A spokeswoman with the Department of Health and Human Services, Sabrina Roberts, says education is really the biggest piece. They really only want to use the travel money for women and girls in horrific one-off situations that need an immediate response. Uh, Other, you know, chunks of the money, 95,000 will go to personnel. 
$75,000 to consultants hmm, and $23,750 <laughs> for overhead, quote unquote, because we had the quotes in the story on cleveland.com. And there are no specifics. We don't know how people are going to be eligible, how they will apply for this funds, but they say they want to determine exactly what services are necessary before they set up this, you know, this program. Okay, but the, the difference between Cleveland and the county is they are going with a nonprofit to administer it. Maybe a nonprofit that can work faster than a government. But well, and maybe I'm mis maybe I'm misunderstanding this. But I thought the county was not using ARPA money directly. That they were going to take money out of the general fund to pay for this, and then use the ARPA money to shore up their budget, which was part of the purposes. Courtney, do you know? Um, not sure about about that. I, I did just want to say though, there, there's a good chance that Cleveland may go the nonprofit route too. We haven't fleshed out those details, but I'm starting to hear that that is being considered on the city side. FYI. Well, hopefully that's us getting action because I think we've said it repeatedly that there is no way Cleveland, if it did it itself, could react quickly enough for a woman who needs an abortion to get her out of state in time to have that abortion before it's too late. I mean, nothing at City Hall moves quickly, as you know well. Um, Lisa, am I misspeaking about that or is it not clear? I thought that when when we first heard they were going to use ARPA money to help people get out of state for abortions, we thought that's probably a red flag. That's probably not a legal use of the federal dollars. But the mechanism was they would spend general fund money and then shore up their budget with ARPA dollars. Is that not the case? I, I really, you're, you're calling me out, Chris. I don't know. I missed that nuance when I was, um, you know, doing my notes for the story. So yeah, I can't speak right, to maybe that. I'm, Sorry. Maybe I'm misinformed. We'll get, we'll get more on it. But I, 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 if they're using stimulus dollars to pay to get people out of state for abortion. I have a feeling there's some members of Congress that are going to scream bloody murder on that. Can you say Jim Jordan? So we'll, we'll follow up and uh, we'll get some answers. You're listening to Today in Ohio. So what did Eric Gordon tell us when he sat down to discuss his Monday announcement to step down as Cleveland School's CEO at the end of the just started school year. Courtney, this was big news. We reported it big, but but he wasn't talking about it till a day later. What did he say? Yeah, Eric Gordon talked to our reporter Hannah Drown yesterday on off the the news that he's going to be leaving and and really we kind of wanted more information I think about why the decision now. Um and you know, Gordon told Hannah that the district's in a place where a leadership transition can go smoothly. Um, he said there's good good financial health there at CMSD. There's good benchmarks for how they're recovering from the pandemic. The public has really kind of bought into what CMSD has been doing to improve itself over Gordon's tenure. So he said all those kinds of things really allowed him to be in a good place to step away and for a new person to come in. What's interesting, because I hear from a lot of people these days, I'm getting thousands of texts and emails a month now, and I heard from a bunch that just immediately leapt to the conclusion that there was a conflict between him and Bib. You know, part of that was there was social media stuff going out saying that. Part of it is there's just a distrust of government because of how badly government's been behaving lately. Uh, Eric did not in any way say that was the cause. In fact, he said he had decided months ago to probably do this, and but in recent weeks, he decided to act on it so that they could have a decent transition. 
Yeah, and he started, like you said, he started getting the word out, and that culminated in our announcement on Monday. It, you know, I, I really was interested to hear kind of his take on his tenure there. You know, um, he told Hannah when he started in this job 11 years ago, he he had three goals, essentially. He wanted to improve the worst performing district in Ohio. He wanted to make sure that CMSD's work matters. And he wanted to, you know, start to tackle the barriers to success that students all over the city face, right? And Gordon, looking back on his career here, says he's he's achieved these goals. And he thinks the district's in a good place to launch and continue on those goals going forward. To your point, um, who, who knows what comes next for Gordon? He told Hannah that he doesn't have anything lined up right now, and there's still several months to go before he steps down. Yeah, and he's planning to invest himself fully in the rest of the year, and he said he'd probably have uh, some emotional moments at the, the uh, graduation speeches. I should mention, yesterday I said that when he started, he was interim, and my memory was foggy. He, he was de facto interim. They gave him a one-year contract to start and said, we're going to try him out. I think I couldn't find this yesterday that he, the second year he got another one year contract. And then finally they gave him what you normally give. So, so even though they, they named him as the CEO, they didn't give him a long-term contract to start. It was an unusual situation. Lots of people coming out of the woodwork to salute him. He's, he's very highly regarded in many quarters. There's some people that have been critical of him in recent years for closing the schools during the pandemic. We talked about that yesterday, but the overwhelming opinion is Eric Gordon was the perfect CEO for the schools and will be very hard to replace. You are listening to Today in Ohio. The polarized Ohio Supreme Court had a rare moment of agreement on a First Amendment matter. You don't normally think of the Republicans on the Supreme Court backing the First Amendment. They did not all get to the final decision with the same thought process, but they did stand up for free speech. Laura, what's the case? So this has to do with the Portage Board of Developmental Disabilities and the idea that unions are allowed to organize picketing at public officials' homes. And this was a long court battle that started in October 2017 when union members in Portage County picketed outside the residences of six board members, the private workplace of one of them. All the picketing was on public streets and sidewalks. There were no reports of disruptive behavior, but the board filed charges of unfair labor practices with the State Employment Relations Board, and they claimed the union was violating the, the law, basically. And the CERB, the board, agreed with them. That went to court. They agreed with them. Then it went to the appeals court, and they disagreed, and then all the way up to the Supreme Court where that same decision was upheld. So basically, they're saying, you can't go and pick it at a public official's ho- house. That is free speech. But the, but there were two factions on the court right. in getting there. What was the difference? So they were divided 4-3 in these reasoning. And one group basically said that it was restricting the particular views of speakers and was unconstitutional. That was from Donnelly. He's a Democrat. And then Justice Sharon L. Kennedy wrote a concurring opinion. She said that limitations are an, or on inducing or encouraging others to pick it in a public forum on an issue of public concern strike at the heart of free speech protections. Yeah. The, in, the, in the first one, he's saying that it only applied to unions. It didn't apply to other people. So other people could say, yeah, go protest. But the unions had the prohibition. Kennedy's saying that that doesn't matter. You just can't do this at all because it's a free speech issue. So which is kind of the more 
broad definition. Well, it's and it was unanimous. You can't do it. It's good to see somebody on the Supreme Court standing up for free speech. It's really good to see seven of them standing up for free speech. It's today in Ohio. Unemployment fraud was one of the biggest stories in the first year of the pandemic, and Ohio is one of the states that had no end of it. Lisa, where do things stand today? Well, they're getting there slowly but surely. As of March 31st of this year, $527 million was stolen from both traditional and pandemic-related benefits programs since March of 2020. That's a huge figure. Only $398 million of that has been recovered so far as of this June, but false claims have dropped. And uh, Department of Jobs and Family Services spokesman Bill Tietzer says there are a few reasons for that. He says, first of all, the pandemic jobless assistance ended a year ago. That system, because they were trying to get the money out to people as quickly as possible. It was extremely easy to exploit and manipulate, and it had lower verification requirements. So now that that's gone, it's a little bit harder to do fraud. He also says the number of jobless claims are way down. Um, and here's some interesting figures that actually blew my mind. So um, for a typical fiscal year in Ohio, they paid you know $900 million in jobless claims before the pandemic. That grew to $9.4 billion in 2020, and it grew to $14.2 billion in 2021. That's, that's insane. And also, Teat says they made improvements and upgrades to they have a 2004 vintage computer system. So they did some upgrades and, you know, to better detect and prevent fraud. But they also used outside security contractors during the thick of this. And they worked with bank and insurance executives on anti-fraud efforts. But some of these security contracts are still ongoing. But uh, Teat says, you know, as of this spring, uh, they had identified 350,000 potentially fraudulent claims, and those have been resolved, and then they're processing 37,000 more. But Chris, as you pointed out before we started the podcast, is we've heard nothing about prosecutions. Right. They say they're resolved. In my mind, if you've resolved a fraud claim, you've gotten the money back and charged the guy that stole it from you. And I don't think so. This is probably the biggest fraud case in the history of Ohio, when you talk about the number of cheaters and the amount of dollars, and we've heard diddly squat about anybody being brought to justice. Uh, it's a story we'll have to follow, but Dave Yost sends a press release about everything, and he's not saying anything about this. In fact, the story goes into detail about how his office chased down somebody that didn't get a benefit to try and make her repay. She knew what she was doing. And so in a sternly worded letter, slapped him silly and they they finally dropped it. But she worries that people that don't know how to do what she did are just getting harassed. But where is the criminal prosecution on the biggest fraud case in the history of the state? Good question. It's today in Ohio. Has the downtown Cleveland Alliance come up with a better strategy for getting people back downtown than pleading with employers to force workers back into the office? This strategy sounds more fun anyway. What's it about, Courtney? Yeah, I don't think this is going to be a make or break for downtown, but it's sure going to be a nice uh, cherry on top, it sounds like. You know, the downtown Cleveland Alliance is seeking buskers, street performers for, it sounds like, all around downtown, good locations with high traffic. They've scouted out about 20 different places where they where they preferably want folks to go, and they're seeking applications. They've put together a guide to help performers out, and they're looking for everyone from musicians, mimes, comedians, 
you know, com- um, puppeteers, balloon artists, just any kind of performer or fun little thing like that you can think of. They want to pepper folks around downtown. Yeah, I think this is a way better idea of making people want to be downtown as compared to getting begging their employers to force them to come downtown. In one case, you have people who are happy and smiling and enjoying the atmosphere. In the other case, you got really disgruntled workers that are looking for another job. Uh, it's a it's a challenge, and it's interesting to see they've come up with a creative approach. Yeah, the the, the downtown group said that they they just want to bring that vibrancy in life to to the streets. You know, we all kind of knew and loved the sax man who passed away a few years ago downtown. So there's clearly a, a want for this in Cleveland. Yeah, that'll be cool. It's today in Ohio. One more. The Browns home opener is this weekend and fans will see something quite different at midfield. The fans wanted it. Laura, what is it? It's Brownie the Elf. (laughs) He's gracing the 50-yard line of First Energy Stadium for all the home games starting Sunday versus the Jets with the home opener. So this new field was uh, designed, was unveiled on Tuesday with a flyover video, which has Brownie the Elf, the mascot, running around his picture on the middle of the field. It's got his running the football using a stiff arm. We all know what this guy looks like, right? The little little mm-hmm. guy in the orange. So, kind of creepy, yeah. He's not the most attractive guy. It's kind of like a baby with an old face. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure, but people love him apparently, and this beat out the helmet for an option at midfield because fans did vote on it. Yeah, not being a native Clevelander, when I first saw this, I thought it was a very strange historical mascot. I didn't realize it was that beloved. I did notice that on uh, the game Sunday, all the coaches were wearing baseball hats with Brownie on it. So I guess that's the... Well, but they've been doing that for a while now. I mean, Stefanski, as soon as he showed up, he was wearing Brownie the Elf stuff. So it was Mayfield. So the logo has slowly bubbled up amongst the players. I'm glad to see it finally on midfield. And I want a sweatshirt with that logo on it. You like it as a native Clevelander. It's better than that dog. Right? Oh, like the mean yes. dog. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, it's it's in gigantic size at midfield, and the whole country can uh, see it on the television. The, I, you know, we should rerun that story on Sunday when people are watching the game going, What is that thing <laughs> right. in the middle of the field? I, I do think that people from outside will, will be thinking exactly that. What is that? And maybe the announcers will describe it just so people. And give the, the history of Brownie the Elf. Yeah, the frame of reference that you might need. Okay, it's Today in Ohio. That does it for the discussion today. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. And thanks you to everybody who listens to this podcast.